I hear people taking pictures. Is there something unusual? <laughs> so, something out of the ordinary happening? <laughs> All right. I've got more important things than the Super Bowl to attend to. So let me just get this out of the way. 38-34. Didn't want to confuse that with a prophetic word by going to the mic, but 38-34. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, have to address this, right? Thank you, thank you. No, I'm not Drew Brees. That wouldn't be good for you here, and it'd be really bad for the Saints later, if that would be the case. Um, wear the jersey. I'm from New Orleans. This is as close to a common grace miracle, as we'll probably experience in a lifetime. And I probably won't get to do this again for another 40-something years. It's possible. Hey, for me, I, they don't even have to win today. I'm already thrilled. You know, just, just being in the Super Bowl, I'm good, right? So, so it just takes all the pressure off me rooting. You know, all day long is just pure enjoyment, no matter what the outcome is. But I still think they're going to win. But here's, uh, here's even a, a more significant reason for the jersey today. Because you have to process through the possibility that I'm going to preach the word of God wearing a football jersey. <laughs> and run the risk that this is going to be distracting the entire time that I'm speaking. And quite honestly, I hope it's exactly that. I hope it's very distracting. Here's why. Because this whole series that we've been doing on personal idols, which we'll continue again this morning, uh, idols live in the real places of our lives. They tend to not show up real well when we're dressed in our Sunday best. They don't tend to make their show in these four walls. But they show up when we're dressed like this. Sitting down, eating our chips, dipping the salsa, and watching the game, which happens in the regular places of our lives, right? That's where idolatry has its issues. And interestingly, this is in no way a, an attempt to pour water on the game. I'm, I'm going to be seriously watching the game. I'm going to be seriously involved in the game. I will not welcome distractions in that moment from the game. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, for some of us, the Saints season and them being in the Super Bowl, it has served as a bit of a distraction. A distraction for some that gives away the presence of idols in our lives. See, when idols get into our lives, what, what begins to evaporate from our lives is things like joy in a life that's filled with anticipation and adventure in God. That begins to evaporate. And life becomes mundane and familiar and not fulfilling and lacking joy. And in moments like that, we love stuff like a 13-0 run by the saints. Because why? It gives me something to enjoy. <laughs> gives me something to think about. The Super Bowl, the Saints in the Super Bowl, the headlines, the noise, the TV stuff. Oh, something to think about. Something to be distracted with. 
See, there's, there's certain idols in our lives that what they do is they serve us not by becoming the main thing in our lives, right? I'm not going to be so foolish to say, you know, some of us here today, we're really serving the, the New Orleans saints instead of the body of Christ saints, and that's really your idol. Uh, probably not. Probably not a very significant idol. But do you know what it might be for us, though? It might be a distraction for us. A distraction in the sense that a lot of stuff becomes distractions for us. Food. Right? A lot of times we have issues. Food becomes an idol, right? But it's not like the main idol, I live my life for food. No, not that kind of idol. But an idol that just sort of fills up the mundane moments when the inside of me is saying, I'm not happy. I don't like my life. And you know, you can only listen to that for so long. So you do something to make it quiet. Go to the refrigerator. Go eat something. While your taste buds are making lots of noise, you don't hear that. Go light up a smoke. Go shopping. Have I offended everybody yet? Um, watch TV. Right, this is where we, we, if I were to say TV is an idol to you, you wouldn't put it in the category of, yeah, that's true, yeah, for me it's the ultimate purpose of my life, yeah, yeah, TV, I need to get rid of TV because that's what it is in my life. No, no, it's not that. But you know what it is for a lot of us, just sitting there? It's something to distract us from the lack of fulfillment that we have going on in our own hearts. See, there's lots of little distracting moments like this that occupy our lives, and I really hadn't planned on sharing this. Turn to Ecclesiastes for a moment. Because this is, there's a way to enjoy the game today, and there's a way not to enjoy the game today. And if you can answer this question and you have a concern, you, you cannot enjoy the game the way in which God would intend you to enjoy the game. The question is, does your life feel joyful or does it feel lacking? I mean, not in, not in here, right? Not in the room we just, we just sang. We just, we just did the kind of thing that we, our soul needs us to do on a more regular basis. We put God in front of us. We meditated on truth that was in these words. Our hearts sang. We got caught up in the reality of who God was. But when we leave here, we put this kind of stuff on and we go somewhere else. And we live in those moments. Does my life feel joyful? Or does it feel lacking? Like there's just something missing. See, because in that vacuum, idols come to life. And we start wanting things. Why do we want? So you want out of, a, out of a position of lack. You ever eat a really satisfying meal? <laughs> a little bit too much enthusiasm on that one, Vic. You know, you, you eat, it was a great meal, it satisfied everything, it had good sight to it, it had good smell to it, it passed across the taste buds just right, and then when it sat in here, you couldn't eat anymore if you wanted to. In that moment, do you want a commercial about food going in front of you? Do you want somebody to offer you? Out of a moment of fullness, I don't experience want, do I? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
There's a place that God fills our lives to such a degree that we're not out shopping constantly for something else, a relationship, a possession, a success, a new title, a new toy, something just to distract us from the fact that we don't feel fulfilled in our lives. And those idols never become the centerpiece idol for who we are, but they function idolatrously to take the edge off what we're not experiencing as God's people, this quiet discontent that nags at us in our lives. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For, listen, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, this is speaking of a different kind of enjoyment right there. Because lots of people do lots of things apart from him. See, there's a way to enjoy the game today, and there's a way to enjoy the game today. And it all depends on where God is in the picture and what he's accomplished in our soul, and how satisfied I am in him, and whether or not I come to this game needing something. Or whether I just get to enjoy it. By the way, that's how we approach everything in our life. It makes all the difference in how you're married. Do you come to your marriage needing something? So you, you need to complete me. I so want this. Oh, you're in a terrible spot, and the poor person you're married to is in even, an even worse spot. Because you just turned something good that was supposed to be enjoyable by God into an idol. And now you are crushing it under the weight of what you try to get it to do in your life. That can be true of your job, be true of your children. Be true of lots of things God gives you. The home that God's blessed you with. Too important to us. The evil in our desires, remember John Calvin? It's not so much in what we desire, but in that we desire it too much. We look to it too much. And it's become too important. Well, it became too important because of something inside of me that became desperate enough to deputize all kinds of things in my life and make them vital to my existence. And now they're in the wrong place. Look in Ecclesiastes 5. Turn over. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. See, money can get in your life in such a way that it's actually hurting you. Is it because money is evil? No. Money is not the problem. It's the love of money that's the problem. It's what I set my hope in money that it will do for me in my life that makes it go from enjoyable to evil. So some people don't read the Bible correctly. It's almost as though they act like the Bible's against people having wealth. The Bible's against anybody being successful. The Bible's against people acquiring and having in their life. No, it's not. 
The Bible's against us taking those things and putting them in the wrong position in our lives so that now we've begun to look to them in a way that God never intended us to look away from him to find in our lives. That's the heart of idolatry. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days, listen, this is a sad picture, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. People walking through life, and just uses the picture of, of eating, just a common event in life that's under the cloud of what's going on in the inside of a man's heart. Darkness, vexation, frustration with life, sickness, and anger. Just pent up inside of somebody who's supposed to be able to sit down by the grace of God and enjoy a good meal. But he can't. Because too many things have been elevated to the wrong place in his life and he lives his life in that condition. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power. A lot of those can be idols, right? And here the Bible says God gives them to us. It's not them that becomes idols. It's that we use them to get something else that really is the idol in our life. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. It's a common grace, as Matt was speaking of. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, clearly, you read Ecclesiastes, you find people who've got a lot of stuff, a lot of people, a lot of position in life, and they're miserable. And then you find another set of people who've got stuff and people in position in their life, and they're occupied with joy. What's the difference between these two people? It's the place God is playing in their life. It's the role God has been uniquely assigned in their life that nothing else is permitted into that sacred location in their life. Now, this this strikes at the heart of idolatry. I hadn't really intended to start the message that way. That's why none of it's in your notes. But there is something in the role God is playing or not playing in our lives that's very significant. We've spent... Three weeks in this series coming up to today, dealing with just really just discovering, discovering idolatry, discovering how it functions in us, discovering its effects. And I think we probably, many of you have asked, don't move on too fast from here, not going to do that, not trying to do that. Uh, But there is a limited value in looking back in our lives and discovering stuff about us. It's a limited value in that. Listen carefully, there's not no value in it. There's a limited value in it. And you know, where we get out of balance is to think that, well, all I, all I need to do is, is just read my Bible. Well, the Bible will put you in touch with you in some regard. 
Its primary interest, though, is to put us in touch with God, which, which is what things like psychoanalysis doesn't do. You know, Freud wanted to go back and find out how you were raised, the, the, analyze the, how you were brought up, how you went through the stages of human development, and as though that would unlock the key for you. It might put you in touch with uh, where you got some of the bruises in your life. You know, where'd that happen? Why do I respond this way? How did that start happening? Then there might be some value in that, uh, but there aren't any answers in that. You just deeply, more deeply discover the problem when you look back in your past. Memory regression, hypnosis techniques, trying to discover things that happened to you that you don't know that happened to you. It's almost as though we think and we're told by the specialist that if you just can figure out what happened to you, then you can go free from it. How many of y'all know that is absolutely not true? It's kind of like being chained to something and doing a study on steel. It's like, well, now that I understand the nature of steel a whole lot better, you're still not going anywhere. (laughs) You're chained with steel. Yeah, but I understand steel better. (laughs) Great, you're still not going anywhere. The answer has to do with God. Because we've gotten disoriented from God. Remember, this is, this is where this is important for us to understand how this became an idol to me has something to do with something in me that should have been looking to God that way. So there's a great lesson here to learn. Right? Remember this from Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. God starts with who he is. Most important thing about overcoming idolatry is who God is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the heart of idolatry. It's when something else is playing for us the role God was supposed to play. Remember these quotes from Tim Keller. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. This this is a helpful insight. I hope you're reading this book and going back and looking at some of it again and again. Because, you know, if if we just, in a moment, said, well, what's the idol issue for you? Where is idolatry functioning in your life? Oh, you know, we start trying to figure out what it might be. Well, this kind of stuff zeroes in. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, what you've been absorbed in lately, what have you been thinking about, what have you been worrying about, what are you afraid of? Well, whatever those things are, you just got really warm to finding your idol. That's the heat that idols generate. It's the friction that they bring into our lives. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give, that's an idol. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. I'll feel it has value. I'll feel significant and secure. Whatever that thing is, whatever thing we're waiting for, that's idolatrous. Look at that last thought from Dan Allender and Tripper Longman. It says, men and women offered them, them, these gods material goods and labor and time with the hope that the gods would make their lives better. Idols are things that we invest hope in. And I have something yet, but we're hoping when that ship comes in, when that thing happens to me, when this moves in that direction and I feel like it might, oh, I feel a sense of hope rising up in my heart when that occurs, right? Look in your outline here. Idols are the things that displace God in our lives. They are things that we look to, 
hope in and wait for in a way that we were meant to do with God. There are things that we look to, hope in, and wait for in a way that we were meant to do with God. In that sense, understanding how it is that we're looking to an idol, what it is that we're hoping for to get from that idol, uh, will open up for us avenues of faith to give that to God. Because we may not understand how God relates to us in this category, but you know what? When you begin to understand, I am looking to that for something. Okay, well, what is that? And what is it that you're looking for it to bring into your life? Well, did you realize God was supposed to be in that location, bringing that thing into your life? So discovering that may give you an avenue to turn to God now and say, God, that is supposed to come from you. I, I need to learn to get it from you and to look to you in faith to be able to receive it. Now turn to James chapter 4. It's one of the things that idols do faithfully for us is they come in and disrupt the two major components of our lives, horizontal relationships and vertical relationships. Idols will be faithful to be found, having an effect on how we relate to each other and how we relate to God. Right? Ecclesiastes 12 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right? You're looking for a purpose statement in life? I mean, a lot of us you know, can always be, I'm just looking for meaning in life, I'm just looking for purpose in life. Well, God has a purpose in creating us. So I think that purpose needs to be the one we're trying to discover. Not just, you know, well, I grew up this way, or I'm from another country, or I'm from another culture, and we look for life over here. You know, God supersedes all cultures and locations and ages. God created man. And when he did so, he did it with a purpose, and he gave commands that give it away. And the commands can be summed up in two commands. There's a vertical one and a horizontal one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? God sums up the law in those two places. When God created us and he put us in a context of people, he gave a vehicle for the first one to get expressed. Because when I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, the evidence of that will be poured out in how I love others. So God gave us an arena for that to get expressed. But here's the purpose for you and me. You know, whether you're a great athlete, whether you're a great thinker, whether you're a technician, whether you have work great with your hands, whatever it is that you can figure out that people have, have applauded you and made you feel like, oh, I, I should do that more. I'm pretty good at that. What supersedes any of that is God says this, I made you for this, that you would love me. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with your passion, with your ambition, with your great desires, that would be aimed at me. And when that's happening, it deals with our relationship issues this way. If you want to find out why we have issues this way, it's because we first have an issue this way. Right? That first commandment governs everything. As long as I don't have any idols before God, I will do fine in every human relationship I could ever be in. It's only when I have an idol in my life that you and I are going to have a problem. 
And we're going to have our relationships affected. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What causes these things? Now, Christianity spends some time, rightly so, fixing our conflicts. We get in a conflict with each other, and the Bible speaks about, the Bible speaks about this. And we, we're right to tell each other this. That you know, we ought not to speak in a certain fashion to one another. We ought not to judge one another. You know, it's correcting our conflict dynamics. But the Bible's also pointing us to something deeper. If there's conflict in my life, it's because I want something. And you and I will get, get along just fine if you'll want that for me too. The problem comes in when you want something different than what I want. And now we're going to have, we're going to have issues. And depending on how much I want that, or how much I think I need it, how essential it is to who I'm going to be and what, what's good in my life, I could become murderous over it. That's what this verse teaches. I can want something so bad I'll end your life if you get in the way. Or if, if taking it, taking your life will help me to achieve what I feel so strongly about. Now listen, most of us probably don't have murder in our future, right? I hope. <laughs> but we might have slander in our future. We might have gossip in our future. We might have resentment in our future. We might shut off ourselves from another person in our future. What is all that? Well, just a tame version of murder. It's anger. It's self-motivation. It's I can't get you to do what I want you to do. Or you've tread on holy ground for me. Listen, you know, murderous activity like this is a, it's a form of panic. You know, it's, I need something so bad. You know, where is God in that moment? Where's the two great commands in that moment? When I'm in serious conflict with someone. To love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love my neighbor as myself. Well, you know, where did that go in that moment? Well, it got pushed right out of the way by an idol. Right, see, God can call us in our relationship to do some radical stuff. Amazing stuff. Stuff like he does in our relationships. But if an idol is present, we're not willing to do those things. Because something else, that idol controls us. Right? Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here's a great example of conflict in the church. A couple of people here have found themselves in a disagreement. Sounds like a business transaction where somebody is defrauding someone else. And so you have two issues at play here. You've got the one who's doing the defrauding, who, shame on him, that shouldn't be happening. But then you have the response of the one who might feel innocent because they got defrauded. And they're going to respond here in this moment. So this is not a murderous situation. This is a conflict that doesn't end up with bloodshed. It ends up in a lawsuit. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? I mean, this is almost an insulting statement right there. It's like the people of God are going to judge eternal things. You got these foolish little arguments that we're arguing about and suing one another over foolish little things. You can't judge those. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. I mean, Paul is shocked. Can't believe this. And I'm not intending to teach on this particular point, but I do want to make it. Because some of us don't know this verse is in the Bible. And we get into an issue with another believer, and there's a dispute and a disagreement. Maybe somebody broke a contract. Maybe somebody didn't fulfill their duties. Maybe somebody didn't pay on time or handle something. And so one of the parties decides, hey, you know what? If this can't be remedied, we're going to court. Before the world. Now, maybe you've never come across this verse, and this is your first time hearing it. The Bible does prohibit you taking a brother to court. Does it prohibit you getting help to resolve the grievance? No, not at all. You just do it before the church. You let those who are in the kingdom of God, being led by the Spirit of God and counseled by the wisdom of God, help you through that situation. To go to court before the world is to bring the gospel to open shame. Because we live lives before this world as salt and light in the earth to say, hey, not only do we believe something about a person who's in heaven who lived here upon this earth, but he lives in us and he is transforming our lives. And that's, that's the gospel. And so when we Go before the world to say, hey, you know what, me and another brother who have loved the same Lord and, you know, well, I know we probably put aside the two great commandments to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love each other as we love ourselves. But in this moment, we're putting all that aside and we need you to settle a dispute between the two of us, you who don't even know God, that brings the gospel to open shame. So that'd be one issue. But the other one here for Paul kind of touches on things in us. Verse 7, he says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's a radical thought. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? How's that for an option? You're in a situation where someone is defrauding you. They are taking something from you that you deem important. Important can be right next door to necessary, to vital and critical for me. That's a lot of money for me to lose in this, you see. I mean, what would I do without that money? I'm not going to come up with that on my own? Right, you can always justify this, right? And the Bible steps right into that sense where we're, 
and says, why not rather just be defrauded? Why not just take the hit and suffer the loss? That sounds nuts if the money's right, isn't it? I mean, hey, if 10 bucks, you know, I'm with you. Oh, thank God for his wisdom. <laughs> but let it be 10,000. And all of a sudden, this Bible verse perhaps isn't in the Bible anymore. <laughs> because this is, this is vital to me. You see, these guys in Corinth, whatever this issue was about, they considered it so important to their well-being that they were not willing to take a hit. They were not willing to do something radical. See, this is when fear comes into our lives, fear limits our behavior. Have you, have you figured that out yet? When fear is present, there are certain behaviors that are, that are now off the table. Those will not be chosen. Fear now has narrowed my choices, and I've only got a couple of options here when fear is in control. But fear, when it's present, reveals idolatrous desires, something to protect, something I must have. If I lose that... And that's what fear is doing in our lives. I put in your notes there, panic behavior. It doesn't leave room for spirit-given, radical, and amazing, and unnatural responses. When fear is present, you won't walk on water. You won't do something supernatural. You won't be led by the spirit in that moment. Because God might say something like, well, go ahead and take the hit. Wait, God, that's not right. I was the one who was wronged. I'm the one being defrauded. Yeah, yeah, I know you are. Go ahead, take the loss. And you know what? I can do that if whatever it is that I'm losing isn't tied to my well-being, right? If it's not my life that I'm about to lose, I can do that. Because if I've got a whole bunch of life coming to me from somewhere else and I'm going to lose that, it's all right. I'm not losing life. I'm good. I can do that. See, if God is being God to me and this thing hasn't become God to me, I can lose that. Because God can replace it. He can meet whatever need it generates in my life. God can be God to me in that moment. The Bible calls on some radical stuff, right? 1 Corinthians 13, definition for love. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Panicky, fearful people, we're seeking our own. We're protecting sacred, necessary territory in our lives. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, isn't that all that Paul's calling them to do in chapter 6 here? But I was wronged. Yes, you were. By a brother. Don't take that into account. Respond out of something different than the fact that that guy wronged you. That's radical, man. That screams to the world. How could you do that? How could you give that up? Well, because my life is not tied to that. I can lose a lot of things and really be fine in this world. Because my life comes from somewhere else. Now, when idols are present, you can't say that. Because idols have displaced God. And now we must have this. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How many of us can recognize this? If love were active, right? Remember, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If love were active this way, do you know how many conflicts would get easily resolved? 
1 Corinthians 13 could annihilate conflicts. We have ongoing conflicts because we won't do 1 Corinthians 13. We won't do what God said is the mission statement of our life. Love him in such a way that we can love one another as we love ourselves. Well, when an idol is present, I am not loving God the way in which he's called me to love. And therefore, I will not love you the way I'm called to love you either. Look at this. First Peter chapter 3. Listen, there are moments when our idols are... They're hindering the radicalness of what God has called us to. Right? Wives, this is, this is a radical statement for wives. Not just because it calls on wives to be submitted to their husbands, but in this passage, it calls them to be submitted to a knucklehead. Please don't elbow your husbands at this moment. Look at verse 1. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that, that's a good definition for a knucklehead. If you're looking for a knucklehead definition, right, somebody who doesn't obey the word of God is by biblical nature a knucklehead. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That's radical. Because your husband plays this role in your life like he's driving the bus over the edge of a cliff sometimes. (laughs) That decision... That ambition, that goal in his life that, that you don't think fits into the Bible... That deficiency, that sinful tendency that he has. And the Bible never says, hey, you know, given all those things, no, no, this verse only applies to those who have husbands that walk on water, who don't make knucklehead decisions. Well, you know, there, there isn't a husband available, ladies, like that. You got the Adam version. Your husband is from the Adams family. <laughs> So you will, you will, on a regular basis, hear the shuffle of rocks going over the edge as the tires get too close, and he looks like he's asleep <laughs> at the wheel. And then the Bible turns and tells you, submit yourself to him with respect. And fear comes screaming out of the closet, doesn't it? I can't do that. Do you know what that would do? I, I mean, I'm... <laughs> Do you know what he's done in the past? What about my children? What about how the bill's going to get paid? Fear, screaming at you. You can't do that. You can't do that. Listen, don't ever put a smiley face on fear and act as though, well, you know, it's a much lesser sin issue. I mean, it's fear. It's, it's, It's a normal response, you see, fear. Now listen, fear is an aggressive attempt to protect something in your life. It's not this innocent little response to, oh, it's an aggressive posture of, no, you will not take that from me. You will not touch that. I will not suffer loss in that category. That's what fear is saying. But what's mind-blowing in this passage is its context. Not just what it's telling you to do. It's its context. This verse starts with likewise. In other words, ladies, do this like the others that I've just mentioned. Do you know who the others that were just mentioned? 
Be subject for the Lord's sake in verse 13, chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor, to the emperor? Be subject to the emperor? Look, you think you got a bad husband. The emperor in this day was horrible. Selfish, ungodly. Thought he was an incarnation of God. Big head, stupid, hurting people left and right. Much worse than your husband. In verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, right? Same premise, submit yourself to them with respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Right? This is not an invitation to be submitted to the masters who were treating their slaves well. He says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And it goes on and says, you know why? Because in that moment, you're just like Christ. That's what he did. He came and submitted himself to the will of the Father, even though it meant cruel rejection and mistreatment on his part. So wise, by the time we get to this verse, we have the example of a terrible emperor to be submitted to, slaves submitting to, to masters who are abusing and mistreating them, and Christ who submitted himself to the hands of sinful men and nailed him to the cross. And then it says, likewise, wives, do something mind-blowing. Well, I, If fear is in my life, I can't do mind-blowing things. But why is fear in my life? Because there's something in my life more important than obeying God. At some point, I'm going to get to that point. Because at the heart of relating to God is a God who demands obedience. He doesn't just demand that we go along with the ideas we've figured out are good and the ones that we like. God demands obedience. And when fear says, I can't do that, it's because I'm trying to protect myself from something. This whole book, 1 Peter, is devoted to the suffering saints. And fear says, but I don't want to suffer. But this book says, you're going to suffer. In the will of God, you're going to suffer. So part of that suffering will come from those right in your immediate context, those in your life that are going to bring some form of suffering to you. If I have an idol functioning in that moment, I will not be available to that. Look at these thoughts real quickly from Ed Welch in his book, Running Scared. He says, listen to your fears and you hear them speak about things that have personal meaning to you. They appear to be attached to things we value. Take your top three fears and ask what they say about you. What do you really want? What is important to you? What do you value? What do you love? Right? Fear, it's the heat being generated by my desires. I want something, and I'm afraid that will take it from me, or that will make it impossible for me to ever get it. That's what fear is saying. 
He goes on and says, anytime you love or want something deeply, you will notice fear and anxieties. Listen, don't just deal with the fear and anxieties. The fear and anxieties are just the heat telling you there's something generating this heat because you might not get them. Anytime you can't control, of that word, the fate of those things you want or love, you will notice fears and anxieties, probably anger as well, because you might lose them. Right? How, many, how many of us got some, some control issues in our lives? Go ahead, you can nudge each other because some of y'all need to be made, made known about that. Control issues. Right? We want to control things. We want things to go in a direction that we understand and that we value. We want to control people. We want to control circumstances. And we all do it a little bit different style. Right? Some of us don't think we're control freaks. Because we think control freaks are the, the intimidator people. Those people just carry themselves with overconfidence and they kind of get up in your face and they're loud and they're demanding. They don't get their way. They become angry. They rule their house with anger. And everybody's afraid. and oh, Do whatever dad wants. That's control. Control might also be in a much nicer form, though. Like, I don't know, suggestive manipulation. You know, when you kind of come alongside somebody and all of a sudden you're kind of feeding them where they need to go next? Well, you know, and you know you don't really like that. I mean, you've always liked, boom, 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 you lay it out. Yeah, I mean, isn't that really what you'd want? Here, sign real quick. It's much nicer. It's not loud. There's no threats involved. But basically what you're doing is getting that person where you want them to be. There's, there's self-pity manipulation. This is much quieter. This almost looks innocent. It almost makes you feel sorry for the person, which is what it's intended to do. No, no, you guys go on ahead. No, 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 really. No, don't worry about me. You know, that... That almost never is innocent. Because when it's innocent, it doesn't, it doesn't get sticky, you know? If you really are interested in somebody doing something that doesn't involve you and you're going to be left out, you'd sound way more enthusiastic and about them. But, you know, all that, well, well, poor, pitiful. No, 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 no. Oh, really? No, you got, y'all have fun. Go, no, go ahead. I'm just going to sit here and stare at the wall. You know, and the, the bottom of it says, if you can live with that, you selfish individual, then go right ahead. <laughs> That's the part you left off because you don't like the way that sounds. And quite honestly, sometimes it gets in the way of you accomplishing the manipulation that you really were after. It's control. Why do we control things? Because we want something. And I need to get you to provide it for me. Well, it says there is a close connection between what we fear and what we think we need. If we need comfort, we will fear physical pain. Or we might also fear emotional stress if we want emotional comfort. If we need approval from others, we will fear being criticized. Right? In that conversation where your husband or your wife says, Honey, I, I need to talk to you about a couple of things. You know, this doesn't sound like it's vacation plans in this moment. This, this sounds like what I think I did a couple of days ago and two weeks before that. And we just sort of get undone by that. You know, I just can't stand the thought that I'm going to be criticized. If we need love, we will fear rejection. 
we need admiration for our attractiveness, we will fear getting fat. Whatever you need is a mere stone's throw from what you fear. That's a helpful insight. Now, let me just tweak that a little bit because that almost makes it sound like needing anything is wrong. No. We are created beings. We are not sufficient in ourselves. We are made to look to God because we are very needy. So the problem is not so much that we have need. The problem is where I go to get my need met. Whether or not I go to God or whether or not I go to an idol. Whether that idol is a relationship between a husband and a wife. Or whether it is some success or some admiration from others. Some role of acceptance that people play and put me into their category with them and I feel welcomed. And whether or not God is the one who gets to play that role in my life. In your outline there, I put God is my source for every need my life will ever contain. Enslaving idolatry occurs when I dislocate God and seek to make something or someone else the source of my need being met. And this is is what's at the heart of the problem of idolatry. I have dislocated God, and I no longer look to him to meet the needs that are in my life. And I know the needs are there, so now I'm panicking. Now I'm full of fear. Now I'm trying to control things because I'm looking to something less than God that I know has the great potential to fail me and not come through. And I can't bear facing the loss. So this this is where conflict has its roots in idolatry. Because we're looking to each other in ways we're not supposed to be looking to each other. And fear is operating us in a way that's controlling us from doing the radical things that would bring the love and forgiveness and grace of God into our relationships. But all that's coming from this issue, starting in verse 3. Idolatry and divine relations. Go back to James chapter 4, verse 3. The end of verse 2, it says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Your idols now are operating in the category of your prayer life. You are actually praying and seeking and asking God to come alongside your idols, to bless them, to enable them, to make them larger to bring the fruit that you have longed for those things to provide for you in your life. And now we're asking God to do that. Well, you'd think prayer would be more sacred than that. Prayer was intended by God to have this God-orientedness to it, where when we, what we take up in prayer is that which is about God, and we receive benefit from it, yes, But we don't exclude God on our way to something else and then prayer becomes a means for us to get what's not really about God in our lives. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a statement that has to compete with a whole lot of desires in me. I want a bunch of stuff all the time. And when I go to pray, God says, pray that my kingdom would come. Pray that what I want would be 
done. Jesus said that's what characterized his life. He said, I only do what the Father shows me to do. That's my life. In the garden, in the most potentially fear-laden environment that ever existed, the Garden of Gethsemane is the scariest place on earth. Because the Son of God knows that the wrath of God is being collected and about to be poured on him. Now, I don't know what event in your life scares you, but there's never been another event like that one. So in that moment, fear could have found a fertile greenhouse to be operating and growing all kinds of stuff, but yet you have Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. See, prayer is supposed to be God-oriented for the glory of God. I pray for the glory of God in my life. Not idol-oriented, not desperate pleas for God to give me the thing that I'm longing for so that my life will have some happiness finally in it. All right, John Piper's quote here, I think we have it on the overhead. He says, you would not be honored if I thanked you often for your gifts to me but had no deep and spontaneous regard for you as a person. You would feel insulted, no matter how much I thank you for your gifts. If your character and personality do not attract me and give me joy in being around you, then you will just feel used like a tool or a machine to produce the things I really love. So it is with God. If we are not captured by his personality and character then all our declarations of thanksgiving are like the gratitude of a wife to a husband for the money she gets from him to use in her affair with another man. This is exactly the picture in James 4, 3 and 4. Why does he call these praying people adulteresses? Because even though praying, they are forsaking their husband God and going after a paramour, the world. And to make matters worse... They're asking their husband in prayer to fund the adultery. I wrote this down in your outline. How often are we praying out of a posture of discontent and desperate longing for something or someone that will make us happy while we already have God? the greatest treasure and relationship we could ever possess. What does it feel like from God's standpoint when God becomes a means to an end and not the end? What is it like When we possess God in our lives, we have the ultimate relationship that the human heart could ever, ever have. But yet I will not be happy or have joy until I have that relationship or until that relationship becomes something different than what it is. And so we begin to pray to God and ask for God to move in this thing. Listen, does God want to move in some of those relationships? Yes, he does, but not for the reasons that we're after. 
because we want him to move so that finally my life can be healed and I can be whole and I can have joy. And all the while, God stands and says, am I not, am I not enough, enough for you? Am I not what your heart was longing for? That you have me and yet you feel so incomplete and lacking still. What are you looking for? Well, quite honestly, in that moment, Christians, I'm not looking for God. I want something else besides God. See, because I already have God and I'm not happy. If you've lived long enough, you already know that whatever that thing is that you're hoping to get, when you get it, guess what? You still won't be happy. But the great tragedy here isn't our quest for happiness. It is the dishonoring of God that takes place in the moment where God becomes insufficient. I don't know if there's more insulting words to the all-consuming fire God that we know than to consider him insufficient, not enough. My life still lacks God. I have you, but you're not enough. The rest of James here, chapter 4, verse 5, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm not going to go through the outline here with you. You can go back and look at that passage in Hosea. But adulterous was a familiar Old Testament term that God used over and over and over again to describe his people when they went after idols. Because he had proclaimed spiritually that they were to be married to him. They were to look to him. And when they became dissatisfied in their marriage, love, relationship with God, that they would go somewhere else to have an affair and find benefit and enjoyment outside of God, God said, that's adultery. That's spiritual adultery. That's the language that he used in James uses it again here in the New Testament. And then verse 5. This is the ultimate problem with idolatry. It's not the harm it brings to us. It is the violation it brings to God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Jealously. The Bible describes God as a jealous God. Not jealous the way we're jealous. We're jealous because we want people to orient around us in a way that sometimes they're not supposed to orient around us that way. God is righteously jealous because everybody's supposed to orient around him and to go anywhere else with our affections and our hope And to look to something else, no matter what it is, before God, it's adulterous. It's wrong. It violates God. You know what's interesting here is you trace this passage out. This this passage started in the category where you and I live and probably have our most interest. What causes quarrels and fights among you? 
This is what gets my attention, right? Because I want relationships to go a certain way. I want to work those things out. They're important to me. I strive to have something in this relationship this way. Where this passage ends up is the reason why you have issues this way is because you have idolatry in your heart. You want something more than you want God. And it's visiting you all over your life. What is God jealous for? He's jealous for our faith. He's jealous for our trust. He's jealous to be the one that we look to in hope. That I I have a future. Do you believe it's a good future? Well, it depends on what my wife does. It depends on what my children do. It depends on what the economy does. It depends. You understand? You You feel a certain way about your life when you go home and get dressed like this. That I didn't feel that way when I was singing the songs. <laughs> I felt like everything's in harmony now. Everything's cool. But when I go home and I start thinking about my life and I think next week I'm going to lose this. And that's not going well. And I've got to work through that. And boy, I'm not up to that. I don't feel like doing that. And now all of a sudden I'm looking for a sense of joy and I don't like the way I'm feeling. And if I live in that long enough, I think I'll go to the refrigerator and distract myself. I think I'll just sit down and scan what's on. I think I'll go shopping. Not because those things are my ultimate satisfaction, but because I'm miserable. I don't like my life. I'm not happy. And all the while, God stands and says, I don't know what it is you're looking for, but I supplied me to your life. And you're standing there right now saying... God, you're not enough. What else you got? This is the heart of the devastation of idolatry. Listen, there's a lot of factors, and the Bible teaches on it. Idolatry messes our lives up. And there's a lot of pain and difficulty in our lives because we've displaced hope and put things in the wrong place in our lives and we're all very concerned about the effect it's having on us. The Bible is first concerned with where is God in this? The great travesty of idolatry is that God has been displaced. Matt, go ahead and come up. Remember that passage in Ecclesiastes? Right, go, go with me in your own heart here. Is God the one that you look to for hope in your life? No matter what's fallen apart around you, no matter what's not got a trend that looks positive right now, can you look at life and say, you know, the one thing I got going for me is that God is in my future. God is to me my source. My hope is God. You know, that, that's not good right now, and that's falling apart, and that looks like it's about to break too. But what I got for me right now is not whether those days are trending positive. I have God. I put my hope in God. I put my faith in God. I put my trust in God. Remember the great difficulty of 
of hard idols. And this is where we learn from idolatry. You know, sort of like going into a gold mine that collapses on us. Well, you know, you know, the way into that thing is the way out. Go back out that way. What was it that you were looking for? What were you looking for in that relationship? I was looking for acceptance. Just my heart cries out. I just, I just want to be accepted by people. Okay, well, that thing is in you to be found in God. It's not wrong for you to feel that way. It's wrong to solve it through the wrong thing. The quest for acceptance, if that's an idle issue for you, seeing it means, okay, now I know where to put my back. If I have found the desire for acceptance in that person, that person, and that person, these are the people. Some people I don't really care to be accepted by, but those people right there, I do. And it's become idolatrous, then your posture now is this way. Get up in the morning, put your back to those people. Not in a harmful way. They're in your life in an inappropriate way. Put your back to them and turn your attention to God and say, God, what I have sought in them, I seek in you. God, teach me to have your voice satisfy my soul. When you say you are accepted in the beloved, God, the God of the universe. Lord, that doesn't mean enough to me. There's something wrong with me. Because I do want to be accepted. And you wake up in the morning and you want to feel safe and secure. Is that wrong for you to want to feel that way? No. Nothing wrong with the desire to feel safe and, and, and a sense of confidence that it's going to be okay in the future. But when you get up in the morning and you stare at your bank account or you wonder about your job or whether or not your husband's going to do well in your life and provide for you a sense of safety and security, now you know what to turn your back to. Repentance means, God, I will not put my hope in that for my safety and my security. You are the hope that I have that tomorrow I'm safe. And next week, I'm secure. And I have a future and a hope because of you, Lord. And I turn my attention to you to receive that from you. See, what idolatry has done is it's occupied territory that God was intended to be in. So whatever your heart issues are that you go through our idol architecture thing and you work through, you start discovering. What you just discovered was what you need to turn your back to. And how it is that God wants to be that in your life. The great tragedy was that I stopped looking for God to be that to me. That's idolatry. Let's stand up together. Everybody just to bow their heads for a moment and let God reach you where you are. I believe there's some here this morning who are in a place for the, the first time in their life to look to God in a way that you haven't looked to him before. Maybe he's been something that's in your life in some category. But he hasn't been the one you have put your hope in. 
He hasn't been the one that you put your trust for your future in. You might be sounding more like this guy in Ecclesiastes. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Or he who loves wealth with his income. Or where it says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? And all his days... He eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Listen, if that's the condition of your life, it's sort of not a good place to be arguing that I have a really great relationship with God. I'm humble and I look at my life. Those words show me that there's a void in my life of God. See, for those who have experienced God and put their hope in him, it says he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. If you're here this morning and you've never come to the place where you've said, God, my whole life is yours. And you are now the center of everything that I'm about. You're the reason why I live. And today, from now on, God, I surrender my life to you. I'm no longer going to have my agenda over yours. I want to discover your agenda. God, I'm coming to you. Now listen, here's why you can come. You can come this morning because Jesus Christ died on a cross in your place and took upon himself all of your sins because your sins would have made this moment impossible. A holy God would never have received you unless your sins could be forgiven. Well, they can be forgiven. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to forgive sins and to wash them away in our lives so that now, clean before God, God would open his arms to you and receive you. So if you're here this morning and you'd say, you know, I've, I've not put my hope in God. I've not put God in the center of my life. Well, right now in your heart, tell God you receive his forgiveness for your sins. Tell him right now you trust in Jesus Christ and what he did to cleanse you and give you a new life. And then in your heart, tell God, God, I turn away from whatever idols have been in my life. I turn to you, God. I trust you. You, you are my hope. You are my future. God, lead me in my life. If you prayed that for the first time today, God's begun a new work in your life not be the easiest thing you've ever done, as you're going to hear in just a moment here. But it's the most significant thing you could ever do. And there's some of us here today who today wouldn't be the day for us to make the decision for the first time that God would be the one in whom we hope and he would be our source of joy 
We did that a while ago. Some of us a long while ago. And sadly, when we survey our lives, it doesn't feel like God's keeping me occupied with joy through my life. It, it feels like I lack something. And the evidence in my life is I've been very busy trying to find it in people and in places and in positions. Listen, one simple thing has happened. It's not that complicated. God has been dislocated. And something else is what we've hoped in and trusted in and put our faith in. So seeing that this morning, let me pray for us. been our design and intention to displace you as our first love. God, there was a point in so many of our lives that we could never have imagined, Lord, that we would feel such lack because we had tasted of you and you had filled our lives with joy that joy of our salvation the awareness that all things are right in life because you're in the right place in our lives so Lord we never could have imagined that there would come a day where we would feel empty fearful anxious controlling angry all because you have been dislocated Lord our idols they are empty they cannot provide for us Lord they will never be to us what we are looking for them to be but God you you are abundant God you not only meet needs you swallow up our lives Lord you don't feed us through a dropper God yours is a river of life that burst forth from our innermost being when you, by the Spirit, come to dwell in us. God, how humbling it is to read a passage that says, you are jealous that your Spirit would dwell in me. God, thank you that that is still true this morning. Though my life, my life has been insulting to you. Because my choices and my eagerness and my ambitions began with the posture that said to you, you are no longer enough. God, I was deceived in that moment. My view of you was weak. And the things of this world were loud and attractive. But Lord, right now, Lord, I'm I'm closer to sanity, Lord. I'm closer to seeing that was foolish on my part. It was a path that could never bring me life, Lord. It was empty and filled with pain and dysfunction. Oh, Lord, this morning, give us grace to draw near to you once again. Lord, this morning, give us an attitude to fight for your nearness in our lives, Lord. 
God, give us a sense of what it is to turn my back on the wrong things and to seek them in you, Lord. Lord, you are the source of my needs being met, God. You are the one who brings me acceptance and affection and care and significance. God, you are the one in whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. God, I don't need to find pleasure in some sensual activity, God. I can find all the pleasure I need in you. God, you are my source of confidence and security. That it's well with my soul, Lord. Because you are in my life. God, in all the ways that I have looked to a lover, I repent this morning, God. And I look to you, Lord, to be to me once again, first love, the one in whom I hope and put my trust.